Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. And welcome with me on my little uh, Artemis summer walk here at the preserves. We're in the wife beta, but it's hot. It is the dog days of summer, so I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts. This is a special presentation. I wanted to talk about Meet the Archons. Um and how it's available right now for digital download. It's doing very well and the feedback has been stupendous and it should be stupendous. You won't find this sort of information anywhere else in cyberspace or meat space. But some of you have said, all right, Miguel, could I have a taste? Could you give me a little bit of a taste? So that's what, that's what I wanted to do on this show. Uh, so you'll get, you might say two bookend shows. Uh, partial so you can see for yourself the conference astronosis 2 at the theosophical society had sort of a theme it started out on the first day more on the historical scholarly and mythological aspects of the archons this included me april deconic and richard smoley and then as the conference progressed we got into more meta aspects of the archons how they appear as mind parasites ufos and how they manifest in modernity and this included speeches by mitch horowitz sarah el Kaldi, um and of course chris knowles towards the end by the second day we brought it all together with our uh, panel discussion and with the great uh, talks by uh, James True and Steven Snyder. So as a holistic view of the Archons, our favorite Bond villains that we got at Astronosis 2. The bookmarks are, I'll, I'll, I'll provide to you, will be April DeConnick and her talking about how the Gnostics discovered or innovated the Archons and how it affected their theology and worldview 2,000 years ago. The second one will have Steven Snyder showing how the Archons are the great Time Lords that really ramped it up in 1974 and brought the hammer down and gave their instructions of total control to our world. Two great talks, again, two bookends that really give us a spectrum on the Archons for thee. What else? What else? Oh, God, it's a beautiful day. Love the breeze. Uh, yeah, as always, for all subs, I like to give you a little extra for tuning in, and I shall do that in this show. What you will get is not from Astronosis 2, but from Astronosis 1, and that's Chris's presentation, uh, which he entitled, My God, It's Full of Stars. You'll get the whole thing. You will get... Uh, and same for, same with Meet the Archons, a audio ver or video version, if that's what you, whatever you prefer. That's it. Whatever you prefer. And Chris's presentation is simply mind-blowing. It's a synchromystic astrotheological tour of the force that takes us from ancient times and star lore all the way to modern times and how the elite use these star rituals to basically control our reality almost an hour and a half of high-octane gnosis. 
And yes, I'm providing it because I kind of forgot about it. In other words, last year I put uh, most of Astronosis 1 on YouTube. With Chris, I started out just putting uh, half of it. And then I completely forgot and only uh, Secret Sunners and those who uh, bought tickets for Astronosis 1 have been able to get the full cigar, the full shebang. So for all of you AB Prime members, Patreons, Rockfin subscribers, AB Prime members, you'll get the full Chris Knowles. My God, it's full of stars. You'll really enjoy it. Keep in mind, too, that if you join the Virtual Alexandria Academy, you will also get Meet the Archons at no extra cost. And uh, the Virtual Alexandria Academy is obviously the preeminent place for Gnostic education history, and even spiritual tech. And for those of you who join like a monthly Patreon or AB Prime member, there's always discounts over there. I always want to find ways that fit your uh, budget and needs and give you access to this very important information, essential for today. Plus, again, uh, uh, subscribing to Meet the Archons or the Virtual Alexandria really helps Aeon Bite. In fact, uh, money from Meet the Archons is already helping helping us fund next year's Astronosis since the first two were so popular. So if uh, by purchasing uh, Meet the Archons, the money helps to make another amazing event. And I hope to have more information for you, not in winter, but hopefully by the fall or so again we're planning this already and it's going to be even better so that's it i don't want to waste any more of your time i know like me you want to be out enjoying the dog days of summer listening to podcasts and all that so let's get to the main event and let's have april deconic the great gnostic scholar talking about the archons and the gnostics and then steven snyder takes us to some high weirdness places that I know you'll enjoy. For subs, yeah, get ready for Chris Knowles and his unforgettable, game-changing, my God, it's full of stars. I know, it's my God, it's full of sunlight, so whew, it's getting hot. Anyway, thanks for being here, and enjoy the rest of the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Can you hear me? Good. All right. Excellent. Um, so good to be here today. Thank you for that beautiful presentation. I think you've like covered so much that will make what I have to say, I think a lot easier for people to uh, kind of digest and, and um, understand. So um, today, know thyself, know thy enemy. What the Archons can tell us about Gnostic politics. Um, some of this, I think Miguel was uh, hinting at in, uh, in his presentation. So I want to start today with a story that some of you may know, maybe all of you may know, about Paul McCartney. Um, there's a story that Paul tells about one of the worst things that happened to him, and that was discovering the meaning of life and not being able to remember it. Um, he recalls being with Bob Dylan in a hotel room and getting very high. And in that moment, he says that he cracked the code. He knew the meaning of life absolutely. And he couldn't wait to tell everybody about it. So he grabs a piece of paper and he writes it down. Um, and the next morning, 
he finds this piece of paper and he looks at it and it simply says, there are seven levels. <laughs> to his surprise, he couldn't figure out what the heck he meant. And um, I, I'm here to tell you that while, while Paul McCartney may not have known what it, it, it meant, we here know better. And um, the seven levels as the meaning of life, well, that's what we're going to talk about today. In the academy, Gnostic studies have rarely focused on the archons, except perhaps, perhaps their chief, the arrogant god of the biblical story who mistakenly thinks he's the supreme deity. But the others who make up the hebdomad, that is the seven, lurk in the background, seemingly less important. They haunt the myths as rebellious divinities attached to the planets and the celestial realms as co-conspirators who help mold Adam, as fates who control the destiny of souls. They were significant enough that Gnostic initiates in some groups spent years memorizing their names and their astral locations so that when they died, they could force the archons to release their souls from the cycle of birth and death in which they had been incarcerated. At this conference, we are taking a closer look at the archons, who they are, and why they are integral to the Gnostic systems. In fact, I propose that the very identity of the Gnostic was constructed in contrast to them. For the Gnostics to know themselves as children of the transcendent God meant that they had to know that they were detained on earth by God's enemies. And they had to know what to do to be released from their captivity. To know themselves, they had to know their enemies. So my agenda today, I have four items that I would like to uh, um, uh, kind of uh, wrap our heads around. Uh, four questions. Uh, what were the Gnostics trying to say about themselves and their world uh, in terms of using this archontic language and system? Uh, how did Gnostics actually imagine the astral world? What did it look like in antiquity? Uh, what did their soul rituals look like? Um, and, and here we're going to get into some therapy. And were finally the Gnostics nihilists? Okay, so those are some of the questions that I want to address today. So my first question, what were the Gnostics trying to say about themselves and their world? So ancient Gnostic mythologies were all created on what I call the kinship theory of religion. Um, and it's important for us to understand this before we get too much further in because it helps us understand who the Gnostics thought they were. Gnostic mythologies are very different from other religious mythologies in antiquity because the stories insist that we are biologically related to a transcendent God beyond our universe. Uh, in this kinship theory of religion, we are understood to be children of this God, not as adopted children, but because our bodies actually contain God DNA. Now, the ancient Gnostics, of course, did not know about DNA, so they called this God aspect 
the spirit, uh, the spiritual seed or pneumatic seed, the spark of light, uh, or some such uh, kind of a word like this. Um, and they, and it was a word that differentiated this aspect of the person from the soul or the psyche. And in antiquity, the soul is the psyche. It's the, the human mind, uh, our ability to be able to think, to reason, our emotive self. This is what the psyche is in antiquity or the soul. So keep that in mind as we go. Today, we might, uh, we might not find this kinship theory of religion to, religion to be too alarming, but in antiquity, this was paramount to treason because it crossed the line that kept gods and humans separate species. In ancient Mediterranean religions, gods relate to their human creations as masters to slaves or as kings to vassals, as patrons to clients. They are supreme and all-powerful and usually capricious. Humans were meant to serve them and be loyal to them. That's why they were created. Temples were built to house the gods and to feed the gods. Worship was established to praise the gods like kings and to keep them satisfied with offerings. Governors and laws were established to enact the will of the gods. And any person who threatened the superiority of the gods by thinking too much of themselves committed the crime known as hubris or arrogance. If you committed hubris, the gods' anger would not only strike you down, but mow down your city too. Hubris caused famines, plagues, natural disasters, and wars. So personal hubris had big communal consequences. I have written extensively on this countercultural aspect of Gnosticism at length, so I will not say more about it here. I just note that this kinship theory of religion was developed by people who flipped ancient religion on its head. They did so because their lives as colonized people did not seem to them to reflect the going explanations for theodicy, that we suffer because we are sinful or that we have done the gods wrong. The Gnostics felt that they suffered no matter what they did, whether they worshiped the gods or not, whether they sinned or not. So they looked for another explanation to the problem of evil, which they experienced firsthand every day of their lives in their destitute poverty, in their constriction into the Roman army, in the brutal military crackdowns on Jews in Alexandria, Palestine, and Syria, in their excessive taxing, in contracting diseases that were incurable, and so forth. The Gnostics said enough is enough is enough. They wanted a metaphysical order that made sense of their everyday experiences. They explored the option that our suffering may have a different cause. And if they could figure it out, they hoped they would be able to alleviate it. Um, uh, hang on, hang on. I 
back to this one. Um, this is why they began talking about a previously unknown transcendent God who is the source of all life before the universe was created by fallen angels or archons who mucked it all up. This is also why Plotinus, the father of Neoplatonism, tells us that the Gnostics who attended his seminars said that they made soul journeys to the transcendent God, they only knew him, and came back to earth to, to uh, both transformed and perfected, empowered to help alleviate the sufferings of the poor and sick in society, often using the magical healing arts. The best analogy to them that we might have today are to bodhisattvas, who are enlightened and believed to possess great magical power. Bodhisattvas delay their entry into paradise in order to stay on earth to help others. These are, again, are the best analogy I can make to ancient Gnostics. Okay, my next question, how did Gnostics imagine the astral world? While we don't know all the many paths to the transcendent God that the different Gnostic groups taught, we do know the path that the Ophians taught because Origen, the church father in the third century, has left us with the complete package. We learn from Origen that the Ophians had an astral diagram that contained the names of all the archons, the sounds they make, and their planetary locations. Origen was able to get hold of a copy of this diagram, which he describes in great detail. From the map, he also copies the seven prayers that the initiates used as they journeyed from one astral plane to the next. Essentially, we have the entire astral ritual the Ophians used because of Origen's work called Against Celsus, where he talks about this. So are you ready to learn it? Yeah. All right. Uh, let's begin by reviewing the astral world as the ancient people in general understood it. Okay, so first, we're dealing with a geocentric universe. The Earth, you will notice, uh, here is at the center of the universe, not the sun. Um, we have seven planets uh, going around. I don't have these in any order. I just stuck them on there. But you'll notice that the sun is considered a planet and also the moon as well, uh, part, of, part of this planetary system rotating around the Earth. The Gnostics envisioned planetary spheres as distinct astral locations ruled by particular archons. The planets in the Roman world were identified already with various Greek gods. So I have these listed for you here on the side so you can see Saturn, we have Cronus, Jupiter was Zeus, Mars is Aries, the sun is Apollo, Venus is Aphrodite, Mercury, Hermes, and the moon is Artemis. So these Greek gods were already associated with these planets. Um, this is the world that the Gnostics are in. The uh, human psyche was thought to take on its shape when it followed this path. The idea was that the psyche, uh, the soul, existed in uh, this realm of the Milky Way and that on, at birth it dropped down through the planetary spheres 
and entered a body. As it comes down through these spheres, it takes on its various inclinations, if you will, as it descends. So the soul gets certain things. Uh, it gets its ability to reason. It gets its ability to procreate, uh, to be, to, to desire. It gets its ability to grow and mature. All of these things, uh, 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 think of them as kind of attachments or shapings of the soul that happens as it ascends down through here. And so your horoscope matters. How the planets are all aligned is going to matter in terms of what kind of soul you're going to eventually have here uh, on Earth. When you die, the opposite happens. Your soul leaves the body, separates, goes back up through these spheres. And um, the, the goal is to get back there to the Milky Way when the whole process starts over again. So that was the uh, the, the, the sort of... Um, uh, uh, understanding of the astral world that the ancient people had. This is not just the Gnostics. This is ancient people in, in, in general. So in this ancient architecture, then, um, I have here a diagram that lets you show that the stars are positioned, uh, as a zodiac beltway, uh, here. Let's see what here that rotates around the earth. That's the Zodiac Beltway. And um, what else do we have here? There are 12 constellations or stars that in that beltway. You can see them here. They have particular locations. And um, they understood these constellations to literally be gates. And the reason for this is that the sun journeys around this um uh, 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 journeys around the ecliptic, um, every, uh, annually is what I'm trying to get out, out, out annually. And it goes through each one of these gates at a certain time during the year and, uh, in the uh, constellation. And so the sun path through these stargates is known as the ecliptic. It's sometimes called in our ancient text, the middle. And, um, because of the constellations were understood literally to be gates that the sun is going through, that meant that they were also guarded by sentries or, or guardians. And in the ancient astrology, the stargates are guarded by the planetary gods. So Cronus, uh, Zeus, Aphrodite, and so on were the guards of these various gates. Now, the Gnostics shared this structure, but they re-signified the gods as archons. The different Gnostic groups have different names for these archons. The names and their memorizations by initiates were part of each Gnostic group's trade secrets. But today I want to discuss with you the uh, Ophian um, uh, nomenclature as an example of this type of resignification. So let's take a look at this chart that I created from the information that origin uh, left us. So let's just take a look at what we can learn here. Um, first of all, these are the names of the seven archons that the Ophians know about. Okay, we have those names in other sources as well. So we have some verification that indeed these were the names that this particular group used. They also have angel names. Notice they don't just have their, their kind of, um, uh, uh, I guess, archonic name, but they also have angel names. Uh, 
Uh, this suggests to us that, again, these uh, the archons are some sort of angel, fallen angels. Um, they're actually given those names. Here is their appearance. They're like the uh, lion-headed, um, bull-headed, uh, serpentine, um, uh, co the countenance, uh, countenance of an eagle, um, a bear-faced, dog-faced, ass-faced. Um, and Miguel already talked about the fact that these actually are very much uh, um, align with the idea in antiquity that both the Greeks and the um, and the Egyptians had that associate uh, the gods with various animals. Okay, and so you can see how close this association is with um, these figures. Look at this. I mean, many of them align right across. Um, I wonder if tote and the baboon is actually, that's what they were thinking about when they were thinking about the, a, a bear face, like a, you know, a baboon sort of face. Um, but you can kind of see the uh, similarities there. Um, here's the planet that the archon ruled, the various archon ruled. And then these were their gates that they were associated with. So Saturn rules Capricorn and Aquarius. Uh, uh, Jupiter, Pisces, and Sagittarius, and so on and so forth down uh, down the road. So this is the information that we get from Origin. Once you chart it, I mean, you get a pretty good idea of who they thought the Archons were in this uh, in this scheme. So what all can we conclude from uh, this um, material? What we can conclude is. Um, that a uh, few things, according to these Ophians, the planets and the gates of the Zodiac are ruled not by the Greek gods, but by fallen Jewish angels or archons. Uh, the Ophian archons are rebellious angels, including their chief, who is this traditional biblical god, who here is called Yeldabaoth. This name is a reference to the warrior epithet for um, Yahweh, the Lord of the armies that we find in the Bible. And um, it's some kind of a, a blend of, of, of that phrase. The names of the seven are all derived from the study of Jewish scripture and Egyptian magical books in which magicians had longstanding practice of Hebraizing names of deities and spells, uh, probably to give it an uh, air of antiquity. Um, the Ophians relied on these materials to create the names of the seven in order to authenticate their new cosmic structure as old and uh, scriptural. The Ophians were essentially saying, this has always been the structure of the heavens, and these have always been the names of the planetary rulers. It just took us, the Gnostics, to figure it out by studying and correctly interpreting the scriptures, um, reading the ancient magical art books and figuring out the grimoires uh, and where we've discovered the truth that no one else ever saw. So you see how that works? It's very cool. Um, um, at least I think it's cool. Okay. Uh, the bottom line is that the Gnostics turned all the traditional religions upside down. They said, look, the biblical God, he's just this bad angel. He's this angel of Yahweh who's rebellious and arrogant and jealous, um, just like it says in the Bible. We're just reading it literally. 
Um, and by doing this, um, they were, uh, I th I'm thinking that my, yeah, shoot, okay. Okay. Um, by doing this, they were uh, setting themselves apart from both Jewish, and this is important, also Christian groups that worship the biblical God, Yahweh. So they were after anybody who was worth worshiping Yahweh. Then some, Gnostic, some Gnostics, like the author of the Gospel of Judas, additionally identified the archons with the 12 Christian apostles. Think about that for a minute. So this provides yet another layer of heavy critique of Yahweh-worshiping Christians who considered themselves heirs to the 12 apostles, those to, we know today as the first Catholics. But here is the important point to keep in mind. Gnostics didn't just take down groups that worshiped Yahweh. By re-signifying all the planetary deities as equally rebellious and haughty angels, the Gnostics also pulled the plug on the cultural norms that demanded civic worship of Greek, Roman, and Egyptian gods. All the gods were nothing more than angels pretending to be gods and tricking us that they so that they can keep our souls in their system and keep receiving our offerings and praise. Plotinus tells us in the Aeneids that the Gnostics who attended his seminars also took down Plato. Okay? <laughs> These guys are so countercultural, saying that Plato never was able to comprehend the transcendent God, According to Plato, the final goal of the soul is to return to the stars and fly around the zodiac with the gods, not get out of the system. That's cool. All right. Um, all of this is, shoot, I, I'm sorry. My, my PowerPoint that I had that was going to bring in these things uh, individually is not doing that on this particular setup. So, um, but I'm not using my own computer. So I'm going to be, I'm a little off, but we'll, we'll catch up. Um, all this is to say that the resignification of the planetary gods as these rebellious angels did political work that cut deep into normativity and critiqued the very fabric of, by which ancient society was held together. But there is more. And here, finally, we get to this beautiful slide here. Uh, we not only have Origen's account of the Ophians, but we also have an ancient gem called the Bonner gem that was probably once set in a ring and worn by an Ophian initiate. So really the gem, if you can even see, see my ring, was is about that size. Okay. And it would be have been set in a in a ring like this. Um, and on the front of the gem is carved uh I think this is still it. On the front of the gem is carved this lion-headed god. You can see his big lion head there, right? And um, he's identified by two titles. On this side, we have Ariel. That means lion of God. And on this side, we have his name, Yaldabaoth, okay? So we've got kind of two things going on there. This gem shows us what the ancient Gnostics thought an archon looked like. Okay, so like this is super interesting. In fact, it's our only known picture of an actual archon as the Gnostics perceived them. He is this very ferocious lion-headed man. 
just as the Gnostic texts describe him. So we don't have any su surprise there. But what we see here that we don't see described in our text is that his, is his dress and his stance. And he is dressed in Roman garb as a Roman warrior. Okay. Uh, and even more, he carries a royal scepter, which was associated with Egyptian kings. This particular type of staff here, as you see in his hand, is uh, called a sectum. And these staffs had straight shafts, and then they had these, had kind of these rounded off but pointed ends. And you can see the artisan here just took the A and used it, used it for the top of the staff, which is very, it was just an artistic, um, uh, kind of fun thing to do, I, I think. Um, this particular staff symbolized the ancient power of the king. It also shows up in funeral rites as a type of wand of power that certain officials use as they prepare the deceased for the death journey. Uh, in addition, you can see that uh, he's that Yeldabaoth is carrying a basket. You think, gosh, what in the heck is he carrying a basket for? I mean, um, you know, we think a little red riding hood or something, right? But in antiquity, um, uh, in antiquity, these baskets are often found in Egyptian tombs. And, um, because they're associated with agriculture and used to sow seeds. So this imagery actually fits with the Ophian's understanding of Yaldabaoth as the deity who is sowing souls as seeds. Okay, so this, this imagery comes up in the text uh, and, and so forth. On the reverse, oh, okay, hang on. On the reverse side, um, you can see that what we have are the seven, the names of the seven. So um, this is an abbreviation for Yeldabaoth because it couldn't fit it on. And then the, we have Iao and the rest are, are all in order. These last two, two names are actually flipped from the list we find in, um, or, uh, in origin, but nonetheless, they're the, still the same names. Um, these names, what I find super interesting is that they're on the back of the, the gemstone. So... I, as the wearer, am the only one that can see it through the setting, right? So that's the hidden knowledge. Nobody else can see the names. Only I know the names of the, the seven. Um, when we look at this uh, amulet, then I think it's very striking with its immediate critique of kingship during uh, Roman colonization. Oh, there are the names for you. Um, yeah, there we When we look at this, uh, we see that the, that what the imagery is suggesting to us is that the kings and the governors in Egypt, as Roman co um, colonizers, they were believed to have their authority to rule from a rebellious angel. That's what the Gnostics were saying. They're saying, ah, you Hellenistic rulers get your authority from the archons, from the rebellious angels. Your divine mandate to rule Egypt is a farce. This is really powerful social critique from people who were oppressed within a system that they felt was stacked against them. What did Gnostic groups think ought to be done? 
The Gnostics were unlike the Jewish apocalyptic groups, which often took up arms against Rome only to be massacred. Since the archons were ultimately responsible for the world order and their personal suffering within it, Gnostics developed religious systems and ritual practices to subdue the astral archons in their chamber. They believed that... um, They believed that each person had to be liberated from their control and their twisted system of justice. We can think of this in terms of psychological transference. They projected the trauma that they felt socially and politically onto the divine realm where they felt it could be resolved ritually. Gnostic groups created therapeutic rituals designed to manage their suffering and achieve personal liberation. So what did these psychological rituals look like? Again, I turn to the Ophian practices because Origen has left us with the whole nine yards. The idea behind this is that the, um, well, let's see, hang on. Um, in Origen's testimony, Origen is refuting another philosopher who's named Celsus. Celsus tells us that he had firsthand interactions with the Ophian Gnostics. So this is super important, right? This is not secondhand information that this Roman philosopher was, was receiving around the year 170. Um, but he claims that he had first inter- firsthand interactions with these guys Origen calls them Ophians, Celsus calls them Gnostics and Christians, so just kind of so you know the nomenclature there. But um, Celsus says that their priest actually showed him their liturgical handbooks and that he attended an initiation and he records what happened at the initiation for us. Uh, he says that the initiates go up into the archontic realms and some become lions Some become bulls, others serpents, eagles, bears, or dogs. So you've seen those names before. What are those associated with? Yeah, that's the archon shape. So that suggests to me... All right, ladies, fish, and gentlemen, thank you all very much. Uh, Can you guys hear me so okay? All right, well, humility dictates as I begin this here, I would like to give a big heartfelt thank you to Christopher Knowles. I uh, discovered his blog about 15 years ago. It totally changed the course of my life, and I would not be standing here before you now if it were not for that and his friendship and support. Uh, last night, I know he expressed to me how important it was to help people feel that they were a part of something, and he has very much managed that with me, and I sincerely thank him for that from the bottom of my heart. Uh, and I would also like to thank our esteemed host, Mr. Miguel Connor, for having me here and for giving me a chance to participate in this. So I have questions about what should be done, and I think one of the biggest things that we need to do is to form communities again so that we are not drowning in isolation and alienation. And what Miguel is doing here is crucial to this process. So I am delighted to be a part of that, and I sincerely thank you, sir. And... Um, 
Last but not least, I want to thank this gentleman, Ivan, in the back of the room for all of the excellent work he's done in putting everything together. He's done so many logistics and all the uh, hard work here. So, Ivan, thank you again so much, sir. All right, now it's time for me to piss everybody off. So, when I saw that this year's theme for astronosis, uh, I was floored. Certainly, there's a lot I'd like to say about the Archons. And as with most everything I do, the hard part isn't finding things to say, where to begin. But for once, there was an obvious starting point for me in this one, and that was Denny Sargent. Let me find my clicker here. Just go. All right. Obviously, Denny is not a household name. First came to my attention via Mr. Peter Lavenda. At the time, I was deep into researching an outfit called the Bake Ball. So during the 1970s, there were several groups in contact with a guy called Kenneth Grant. And they had been developing what I've come to think of as the Lovecraftian gnosis or a whole sort of ceremonial system based on the writings of H.P. Lovecraft. And there were a couple of these groups that Grant was in correspondence with across the world. One was the Carly Cell, which originated in my neck of the woods near D.C. There was the Elastica Gnostica Alba of Serba, Serbia and the Cult of the Black Snake an offshoot of the Monastery of Seven Rays from good old Michael Bertrio, a resident of Chicago, probably not too far from here. So, of course, um, yeah, it uh, was definitely on my mind with all this, and the fact that Devil's Lake is right around here, too, in Wisconsin. Well, what all these groups had in common is what I've come to think of as the Lovecraft Gnosis, as I said before. Uh, it's an interesting thing. And generally speaking, I've always been baffled as to why anybody would want to try to create a religion or a magical system or whatever based around the concept of the great old ones. Trying to understand why somebody would want to do this has been quite a journey for me, one that's taken me across the United States a time or two and left me with an impressive collection of arcane books, among many other things. Of course, Nothing has contributed to the Lovecraft Gnosis quite like the Simon Necronomicon, of which Peter Lavenda played an undefined role in crafting. At the time of my interview with Denny, I was more concerned with the possible overlap between the Ohio-based Bake Cabal and the group around Simon and Lavenda that was working on the Necronomicon at New York City's Story the Warlock shop. Okay. And sure enough, there were links. Denny being one of them. He had started hanging out at the Warlock shop when he was still a teenager and had to get a parental waiver to go there. After dabbling in the Welsh school of neo-paganism, he developed an interest in Kenneth Grant. And this led to the discovery of the Bake Ball and its figurehead, Margaret Ingalis, better known by her magical name as Nia Sor. During the mid-1970s, at what was described as a quote-unquote time travel working, and at a farm called Oz, nonetheless. She received a transmission that came to be known as the Liber Priania Priumbria. At least I think that's how it's pronounced. It concerned itself with the Aeon of Mayat, it, uh, in which uh, Frater, uh, Frater Eckhart had previously announced in 1948. Another Thelman idea. We're going to be hearing a lot about them. But Nima's transmission was the most in-depth account yet. Grant was allegedly skeptical when he first read about it in 1975, but eventually considered it to be canical. Denny discovered Nima via a copy of the Ceremonial Journey, or Cincinnati Journal of Ceremonial Magic at the Warlock Shop. 
So the bait cabal had mostly dissolved by then, but several members felt that they needed to publish the results of their workings. Then he and several of the other of his partners experimented with Nima's Mayat magic, merging it with some conventional strands of the Lima. The results were credible. And soon they engaged in correspondences with Nima. She sent them additional rituals to try, and the results were every bit as impressive. So finally, in 1978, she invited Denny and his group to make the trek out to Ohio so that they could attempt the horror-centric thelmic practices with mad magic and fool. And again, the results did not disappoint. The Horace Mayotte Lodge was birthed out of these workings during the following year, and it still continues to this day. Ah, yes, Nathan. Then he had his own download moment in the midst of these mating rituals that would guide the course of the rest of his life. He was told that there were many possible futures, but virtually all of them ensured the extinction of humanity, save for one. In this specific timeline, humanity would survive, but in a new form. We would transcend our physical bodies along with time and space and merge into a kind of super consciousness that existed outside of linear time. Neaton. This is our future, apparently. All right. Nima described this being as her tour guide through, quote, the multiverse, its probability worlds, where our mainstream reality traces a glowing trail of manifestations that we call, quote unquote, history among linked choice nodes. Neaton is the emerging persona of Homo Veritas, the next stage from Homo sapiens. Neaton is a meta person, sleeping all of us, but slowly waking. In the best possible world, humanity would come together to form this. But this future was hardly certain. There were many possible timelines, virtually all of which would lead to the end of humanity. Hence the reason Denny was being given this message. He had been chosen, along with his compatriots, to help guide humanity towards one this one particular timeline that would ensure our survival. It was part of a cosmic war for the future in which various timelines were at play. Nothing was certain, only that the struggle was real. Denny recounted this to me over 40 years later when I was inadvertently put in contact with him. He agreed to do an interview with me on the warlock shop scene, which I suspected would blow my mind at how right I was. Still grasping with Denny's account of this experience, so I can scarcely begin to imagine what it must have been like being there. But suffice to say, raised a lot of questions in my mind about the high weirdness explosion, especially that began around the year 2000. Most especially Mandela effect, which you've been hearing a lot about here today. But before getting to all of that, there's a lot I need to unpack. See, as incredible as Denny's experience was, it was not an anomaly. Point of fact, that entire decade, i.e. the 1970s, seems to have witnessed a proliferation in these kinds of mystical experiences. And this was especially true of individuals dabbling in Kenneth Grant-inspired variations on Thelema. Okay. One such figure was Jeffrey D. Evans, the latter founder of the above-mentioned Carly Cell. 
This was another one of those sects surfing the Lovecraft currents that was in contact with Grant during the 1970s and beyond. Okay, so dig this. It's midnight, July 23rd, 1977. Mr. Evans is 27 years old and a ninth degree member of Grant's Typhonian OTO. He stood on the key bridge over the Potomac, the nation's capital. He was contemplating suicide. As you might have imagined, it was a dark and foggy night, because it had to be. Then suddenly, Evans saw a woman emerge from the fog and join him on the bridge. He subsequently found out that her name was Carla. He invited her back to his apartment, where they poured over his Grant and Crowley books and talked to the Lima deep into the night. Evans brought up a quote from Grant's Cult of the Shadows from the novelist Joan Grant. It involved a woman bound as a mummy in ancient Egypt, being used as a kind of battery. Carla was amazed. She informed Evans that she and an unnamed boyfriend had performed such a ritual together recently. Evans didn't bring it up, but fantasized about doing such things from a very young age. So dawn is approaching. Carla announced she had to leave. Evans asked if he could accompany her to at least as far as the bridge that they had met upon. She agreed, so long as he didn't try to follow her across the bridge. They arrived there. Carla disappeared back into the fog. Evans realized that they had never physically touched that entire time, and he never saw her again. Evans later met with Kenneth Grant in December of that year. Revealed to Kenneth the encounter, and that he... That is Evans to say, probably Grant too, but specifically Evans, was a cross-dresser from an early age. Grant believed he had been contacted by his holy guardian angel, set out to help Evans develop a ritual out of the mummy battery fantasy, suggesting a quote-unquote alien abduction concept to be introduced along with elements of the Cthulhu mythos, a Lovecraftian gnosis. From this came the Carly cell. So this is all unfolding during 1977, just as the original hardcover version of the Simon Necronomicon was being released. The Simicon grew out of the same scene Denny was active in in the Warlock shop during the 1970s. Much controversy surrounds how the Simon Necronomicon came into being, but suffice to say, the group around it, which undoubtedly included Mr. Lavenda, was quite smitten with Grant in their own right. Of course, the Simon Necronomicon arguably became the most important grimoire of the second half of the 20th century. I don't think anybody would dispute it. it's the best-selling one. Nominally, none of the other groups in contact with Grant had the same kind of impact as the Simicon. I mean, how could they win your best-selling grimoire of all time? While influential and possessing a dedicated following, Michael Bertrio has always remained an acquired taste, let's just say. Evans and the Carly cell have always been really obscure. I mean, when you want to turn into a cross-dressing mummy battery, that's not really the kind of thing a lot of people go in for. And um, so, too, was the Horace Myatt Lodge until recent years. In the last decade or so, it's seen a tremendous rise in profile. But beyond that, it's techniques, and especially the whole thing with the candle and the flame that probably a lot of you are aware of, have long since filtered into the broader occult milieu. Okay. It all started making the rounds via word of mouth. 
One ritual, the 11 star working, have been performed every February of every year since 1984 at the Association of Consciousness Exploration's Winter Star Symposium. These are the same folks who put on the Starwood Festival every year. NEMA became a fixture at these gatherings by the early 1990s. The 11 star rite was also performed in the 1985 Harmonic Convergence event. But it was the internet that took things to the next level. Boris Myatt referred to itself as the first cyber lodge, and there's some pretty good justification for that. They were among the first to embrace the internet, going all the way back to the early dial-up days. The rituals were posted online and infested the emerging cyber culture at the dawn of it. A whole generation of magicians emerged as acting agents in the center of this collective unconsciousness of Neoton, or so the acolytes believed believe that they were. Certainly, the influence weighs heavy, if unacknowledged, on more chick and contemporary groups like the Cybernetic Cultural Research Unit, or CCRU, and the Dominus Chaos Marauder Underground, or DKMU. So keep some of these groups in mind, because we'll be getting back to them here in a little bit when I get into the significance of the internet. All righty. One other figure I'd like to consider briefly is one I'm sure most anyone listening or watching me here is familiar with. Mr. Robert Anton Wilson, proto-synchro mystic himself. Raw famously had his serious experience on July 23rd, 1973. That is four years to the day prior to Evans' experience. And Raw's serious transmission occurred after several months of combining psychedelics, Tantra, John Lilly's frequency tapes, and evocations taken from Crowley. Raw described becoming aware of a, quote, galactic star network, an intelligence that seemed not fully formed, but evolving. Raw also indicated he had moved outside of conventional space and time during this experience. He emerged from it with the notion that the Dog Star series was crucially important. And of course, the first confirmation he got from this came from Kenneth Grant's The Magical Revival. Space and time, cosmic consciousness, and Sirius are all extremely important to this, as is the breaking of linear time in general. Despite that, though, one particular year seems to stand as a watershed for all these revelations, and that is the oh-so-mysterious year of 1974. All right. 1974 flies over most people's radars, even in high weirdness circles. But I view it as a companion piece to 1947, which is widely acknowledged for its earth-shattering events. The CIA was created that year, and Churchill delivered his Iron Curtain speech, both of which effectively ushered in the Cold War. It was the beginning of the modern UFO era, thanks to Kenneth Arnold sighting in Roswell. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered while QAC began investigating Hollywood, launching the nation's second Red Scare. The year kicked off with the Black Dahlia murder in L.A. during January, and at the climax of the Feast of Fools, nonetheless. Admiral Byrd completed his so-called Hollow Earth Expedition, otherwise known as Operation High Jump, to Antarctica a few months later. Most fittingly, good old Uncle Al Crowley died in December. That is the greatest album ever, in case you're wondering why it's up there. By contrast, 1974 is more subtle, but it has that. Uh, all right, but there is one major exception besides Blue Oyster Cult, and that is Watergate. 
The scandal started in 1972, but it came to a head in 74. Nixon was forced to resign in August of that year. This was one of the pivotal American deep events of the 20th century, though it's actually rarely acknowledged as such. Like the year it occurred in, it flies under most people's radars. But it was every bit as much of a coup as the JFK assassination, and it also featured several figures active in Project Artichoke, that glorious joint CIA-Pentagon behavioral modification super soldier program. So it'll be really significant as we get further into this, so keep Artichoke in mind. All right, so on that note, another thing that came out was known as the so-called Family Jewels. It was a confidential report compiled by William Colby shortly before he became the CIA's director. The report outlined a litany of illicit and outright criminal behavior that the agency had engaged in, most notably in regards to assassinations. These two events set the stage for the church committee the following year, which tactically acknowledged the security services had effectively gone rogue. It was the year that Blue Oyster Cult released secret treaties, which is more relevant to this topic than it may initially seem. The album was the one most dominated by BOC producer Sandy Perlman, who was a sometimes patron of the Warlock Shop. Same no you there with Denny Sargent, Peter Levin, and all these other folks, right? And his occult-riddled Imaginos cycle is just chock full of all this stuff, and it was put into this album like never before. Sadly, rock and roll, along with pop culture, went to a perpetual decline during this year. And Rock Me on the Water 1974, the year Los Angeles transformed movies, music, television, politics, Ronald Brownstein compellingly argues that L.A. achieved the pinnacle of its cultural domination in 1974. And that's a point I concur with. <coughs> that's about the only one, actually. General, where I depart from Mr. Brownstein is what this meant for pop culture. For him, it was a triumph. For me, it was the beginning of the end. The period from roughly 1966 to 1974 witnessed one of the most creative periods of the 20th century for the arts across the board. I mean, but especially in music and film. As to the latter, you had the rise of Stanley Kubrick, the French New Wave, the spaghetti westerns, the contemporary horror films starting with Night of the Living Dead, loosening censorship. All of this led to groundbreaking films, the reverberations of which we're still feeling to this day. And music? It saw the rise of the psychedelic era. This laid the foundation for pretty much everything good that came after that. Heavy metal, punk rock via garage rock, a lot of electronica stuff via kraut rock and cosmic music, which all came out of psychedelica and post-punk. Let's not forget that. Another kind of derivative of kraut rock by way of psychedelica. I mean, you know, this is pinnacle, I think, of a lot of what we were doing culturally for so many years in the latter half of the 20th century. So the first thing L.A. did was destroy music. It made folk and country rock as personified by the fucking Eagles, <laughs> an institution. Need I say more though than the Eagles, okay? This just, it laid the foundation for soulless soft rock and modern country that has basically ruined both genres and which we are still struggling with to this day. To be sure, it was a gradual process. And you know, again, there were bright spots and reprieves here and there, but, um, Mostly from the punk era, the relocation of the music industry from New York City and from and the East Coast in general to L.A. also brought that whole sunny corporate veneer to the industry, and it's never come back from that. As for film, 
The seeds of destruction were already incubating, even as high water marks like Chinatown were dropping. George Lucas had his first hit with the nostalgia trip American Graffiti in 1973. He completed the first draft of a little film that would initially be known as just Star Wars in 1974. Elsewhere, Steven Spielberg's first theatrical film, The Sugarland Express, dropped in 1974, while filming on Jaws began in May of that year. As I'm sure many of you are aware, the release of Jaws in 75 and Star Wars in 77 marked the beginning of the massive summer blockbuster and tempo releases that dominate the industry to this day. Now, as a child of the 1980s, I've got no hesitation in hailing the early manifestations of this trend. In addition to Chris, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Ghostbusters, so there you got it. But it also marked the beginning of the same soulless, hollow art and mainstream film that was already infesting the music industry. And as with music, the decline was gradual. A few additional peaks in between, kind of thing, especially the 90s, really, and 1999 was such a big year for film. But as with music, a lot of the most visionary works were still mining that glorious period between 66 and 74, which continues to just weigh heavy in all aspects of, you know, really what's left of decent music or film or anything. <laughs> still haven't really figured out where to go forward from that. But I digress. 74 was a curious year for the occult as well. The highly ritualistic murder of Arliss Perry occurred at Stanford in October, uh, Julius Evoli ascended in June. This was the year in which Nima received the Liber Penae Preambia. But she was hardly the only one downloading curious communications from the beyond during that year. As I'm sure many of you are aware, one particular counterculture icon had his own earth-shattering experiences during 1974. That would be science fiction author Philip K. Dick, whose so-called exegist began in February and reached a high point in March 1974. Dick would continue to be touched by this phenomenon for years to come, but never as intensely as those two months. He came to refer to this whole period as 2374. If you were all Discordian fans, you got another 23 in there too, so do with that what you will. It all started with a pair of wisdom teeth that had to come out. So as the story goes, after ongoing oral surgery, Dick called in a prescription for some pain meds. Local pharmacy dispatched a woman to deliver the meds, and Philip was immediately mesmerized upon gazing at her. She had jet black hair and intense eyes, and a necklace, a golden one with a fish symbol on it used by early Christians in the time of ancient Rome. It's also interesting, too, that uh, as with Jeffrey Evans' encounter, this also involves a kind of mystery woman who showed up once in the guy's life and never sees again. So accounts vary as to what happened next. The first time Dick recounted this event in a letter to fellow science fiction officer Ursula Guin in September of that year, Philip didn't mention anything strange happening until a few hours after the encounter. During the evening time, he experienced a, quote, dazzling shower, shower of colored graphs. Dick credited the necklace for being the trigger for this event. In latter accounts, Dick would describe the colors and his revelations as happening instantaneously after viewing the necklace. Indeed, the whole event would gain increasing significance as the years went on. Circa 1975, Dick referred to this whole period as just 374, crediting March as the really crucial period. 
it wasn't until about 1978 or so that he that the fish encounter had solidified itself as the trigger in his mind. So it's important to emphasize this event did not feature the famous pink light. That came later, though many writers, including Dick himself, have confabulated the two events. The pink beam encounter is what occurred in March and why that month is considered the high point. Dick found variations on the fish symbol and bumper stickers placed one on the window of his house. So Dick uh, saw the pink beam initially not long after he put this sticker up. But the really woe moment occurred later that summer when he was listening to Strawberry Fields Forever. It's the same sticker fired a, pink, a beam of pink light at Dick and informed him that his son had a life-threatening medical condition. This transmission proved to be spot on, may have saved the kid's life. And from that moment onwards, Philip K. Dick was a believer to his core. And there were many more visions and so forth to come. Dick came to view the physical world as illusionary, a black iron prison that humanity was trapped and frozen in. At times, he believed we were still in apostolic times and that the Roman Empire had never ended. On a deeper level, this was a thoroughly Neoplatonist worldview, but one prime for the information age. Dick came to see the world as composed of living information and the phenomenal world as a hologram. This was a hypostasis of information that humanity, who are described as nodes in the true mind, process. We exist outside of time and space, in other words, and translate information to manifest reality. But at some point, it was a glitch in the matrix, and we'd lost the ability to read the essential code. The end result was the black iron prison of the good old evil empire. It's especially interesting that Dick continuously likens the empire to Nixon's then imploding presidency. Long after Tricky Dick was out of office, he would still haunt Dick's exegesis. The Dick's initial experience of it unfolded against the backdrop of the Watergate scandal is far more significant than most people realize in my estimation. So we'll get to that in a moment here. All right. And finally, I need to touch upon Vallis before we move on here. So as I'm sure a lot of you are aware, but just in case you're not, it's an acronym for Fast Active Living Intelligence System. Sometimes it's described as a node in an artificial satellite network originating from Sirius, because where else is it going to come from, right? The whole of it was, uh, was the true mind that we were all nodes of. As for the Earth, one particular satellite kept humanity in contact with the true mind. It communicated through pink laser beams that created holograms in the physical realm. Typically, these took the form of symbols, i.e. the fish necklace that could trigger recollection and instinctive knowledge our true nature. So besides the respective experiences of Philip K. Dick and Nima, another major revelation occurred this year, one that would immediately receive international attention. And that was the publication of Andrea Puharik's Yuri, often described as a biography of the Israeli stage magician and sometimes Mossad US slash UK intelligence asset Yuri Geller. But the book was so much more than that. Arriving just as Geller was solidifying his place as a major international celebrity, it introduced the world to the concept of spectra. This was the name that Puharik was using at the time to describe an extraterrestrial intelligence housed in a supercomputer aboard a spaceship. It was a being that existed outside of space and time, 
but was capable of interacting with humanity via holograms. They beamed into our reality. Frequently, they took the form of hawk-like beings. The full scope of Piharic's relationship with Spectra would only become known fully many years later. The first hints of this contact had actually occurred in 1959 in a work called The Sacred Mushroom, Key to the Door of Eternity. So besides being one of the first works to explore magic mushrooms, it also revealed purported contacts Puharic had via various psychics with what he described as the grand need of ancient Egypt, or nine. Later, Puharic came to believe that he was in contact with the same entities via various chandlers and psychics. It started with a pair of seances he held in 1952 and 1953. The second one, featuring a variety of Yankee bluebuds such as the Astors and the DuPont families, is sometimes known as the seance that changed the world. Puharic had additional contacts throughout the 1950s, most notably via Dutch psychic Peter Herkos and far-right mystic George Hunt Williamson, accolade William Dudley Paley. And he was accompanied in many of these ventures by the inventor Arthur M. Young, the man who introduced Robert Temple to the Dogen belief in Sirius. So this laid the foundation for Temple's Sirius mystery, which argued humanity had been visited in the distant past from the star Sirius and also had a tremendous influence in Raw and his own accounts of his uh, Chapel Perilous moment. All this stuff really kind of feeds into each other. It's something I want you guys to kind of note. So Puhari came to believe that he had been contacted by some kind of super-consciousness that evolved beyond the physical world, beyond time and space. It appeared to humanity at various times as gods, such as in the case of ancient Egypt, and now it was taking on the guise of an extraterrestrial and what we would later come to think of as artificial intelligence. By the 1960s, unknown to the public, these concepts began to infest the popular culture via science fiction. Let's see here, I think I skipped that. Oh. Oh. A little far ahead there, okay. So Gene Roddenberry's role in Puyark's circle around the nine and the later influence it had on Star Trek franchises gained some mainstream consideration since the onset of the 21st century. But Star Trek likely wasn't the only place the nine were turning up. As Chris Knowles has done a great job of illustrating in his storied secret Star Trek series, there is a compelling case to be made that Leslie Stevens, the creator of the original Outer Limits, was also initiated into the cult of the Nine by at least the early 1960s, if not sooner. And I'll throw in another name there for you. Stanley Kubrick. The man who inspired Kubrick to become a director was a high school friend named Alex Singer, who eventually became a film director as well. Now, Singer never came close to reaching his longtime friend's heights, but he did work for some interesting folks. And one of those folks was Leslie Stevens, went to work on the Outer Limits with him and got a job around 1960. But it's the last decade of Singer's career that's most revealing. Spent virtually all of it working on the Star Trek franchise. He directed episodes of Next Generation, Deep Space Nine and Voyager, but the bulk of his stuff was with DS9, which is by far the most Nine-centric of the Star Trek shows. Given some of the themes that appear in Kubrick's films, especially in the 60s ones, most notably 2001 and A Clockwork Orange, it's easy to see how he may have been influenced by Puharic's musings. And if Chris is right about it, Leslie Stevens, Alexander Singer stands as a clear transmission point to how Kubrick could have been read in on all this stuff. 
But it was the 1974, but it was 1974 in the publication of Yuri that first gave the public at large a glimpse of this world, one in which DOD connected researchers experimented with psychics, psychedelics, and believed that they were in contact with beings of pure energy. Frankly, there was no more fitting a year for these uh, revelations to be made. That brings us back here to Watergate. Another major work in unraveling the saga of the nine was Peter Lavenda's seminal first Sinister Forces book, which came out in 2004. So there, Lavenda drew attention to the fact that figures connected to the JFK assassination, most notably Michael and Ruth Hyde Payne, shared ties with Arthur Young. So as I just mentioned, Young frequently collaborated with Pjark on these nine related adventures. And he was one of the participants in the seance that changed the world. At the time of the JFK assassination, Young was married, uh, this is Michael Young, or excuse me, Michael, uh, Arthur Young was married to Ruth Forbes Young, another participant in the seance, and this was Michael Payne's mother, okay? Arthur was his father-in-law, and as for the JFK assassination, Lee Harvey Oswald and his wife had been living with the Paynes shortly before the assassination. Oswald had kind of a friendship with Michael, but... Um, his wife, Marina, had grown fairly close to Ruth uh, during this time frame. Since Lavenda's revelations, these connections have generated a bit of discussion. But far less well-known are the lengths that the Nine had to Watergate, which is really unfortunate, because they're pretty remarkable. So that brings me up to Project Artichoke. So, okay, before getting further, I need to make a couple of disclaimers here. First, contrary to the endless disinformation, Artichoke was never rolled into MKUltra, nor did MKUltra replace it. MKUltra was strictly a CIA project run out of the technical services staff by Sidney Gottlieb. Started around 1953. Artichoke predated it by several years. Unlike MKUltra, Artichoke was a joint CIA Pentagon program that grew out of earlier research that was conducted by the Navy, specifically two programs, Pelican and Shatter, served as the basis for this stuff. So the Navy connection remained strong in Artichoke even after the CIA started participating, and the day-to-day -day direction of Artichoke was handled by a guy called Morris Allen, who was a former Office of Naval Intelligence officer. And Allen was part of the security research staff that was housed in the CIA's enigmatic Office of Security. So unlike Gottlieb's TSS, the Office of Security has not generated a lot of, uh, it didn't generate a lot of research. It was an action arm. It was notorious for its black bag operations and for cleaning. Arisa. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.